This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. I believe the phrase goes, Manchester is red, North London is red, everywhere is red except Liverpool, which isn't red or blue, it's just sad. Eric Ten Hag's men turn it around later on against City and clearly last season Marcus Rashford wouldn't have been interfering even if he was that close to the ball. But right now it's a different story, but Pep doesn't care. He's won loads of football matches, these ones don't matter. Meanwhile, Arsenal beat Spurs in just such an obvious way, deservedly eight points clear at the top of the league, barely having to try to beat Tottenham so lacking in anything good. Who knows how many managers will be gone just after we finish recording, but crisis klaxons are sounding all over the country. Lampard, Moyes, Rodgers and Klopp, Cuthbert, Dibble and Grubb. Also today, double hit penalties, eight and a half year contracts and a James Ward-Prowse free kick. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Jonathan Wilson, good morning. Morning, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. Troy Townsend, hello. Morning, Max. Fraser says, welcome at Bearded Genius, smiley face emoji. No one has been that popular before. They've even been on the pod for their (laughs) bread and butter debut. (laughs) Noradine Chowdhury, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. Well, you are great. You're a Manchester United (laughs) fan. We'll start start there. Why not at Old Trafford? Uh, Man United 2, Manchester City 1. Uh, Tim says, which article will Wilson be reusing this week? That United are better without Ronaldo or that City have issues conceding goals in quick succession in big games? Let's stop. Before we go there, Wilson, we'll start with the uh, the turning point, the Bruno Fernandes goal, because it was like a key moment in this game. Manuel Akanji said, to be honest, the first goal is a joke. He runs until the last second. He stops when the ball is in front of him and he's right in front of Eddie. That's Edison. Uh, ready to score the goal. Charlie says, should referees use rules to decide offsides or how pundits feel the rules should be? And Dan says, on the perfectly legal Fernandez goal, does Rashford really influence City players? Their stride doesn't stop. If he stops his run, Fernandez is still first on the ball. Noz, you're objective here. How did you, <laughs> how did you, how did you view this goal? Well, it was it was clearly onside. I mean, there's no debate, is there? I mean, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's churlish to, to, to suggest otherwise. Um, no, it was just mad. Like, I mean, I mean, first of all, like, obviously Rashford's running to the ball, but then you kind of think he does so well not to touch it. Like, quite apart from anything else, it's like he's like, he's like walking on hot coals of like, oh, oh, like inches away. And it's, it's like, even watching the replay, it's kind of like, it's thrilling. It's thrilling to see the, the way he, uh, he avoids it. If anything, he's chaperoning the ball. He's kind of, and, 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 and this thing about interfering with play, like, is 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 Joel the producer interfering with this with this podcast? It's very unlikely. Like it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just turns the screen off and buggers off. No idea. <laughs> but it's it's that it's that thing of um it's a strange one because because um if you if you look at the actual rules as was set out like on match of the day or or from what I've seen like technically you could argue he's not breaking the rules even though it's ridiculous because. Because it's because because he obviously is like like the the, the the city defenders if they just had Bruno standing there or sort of running onto it like this three of them around him like they would cope with it but it's just like I I just find it hilarious the biggest thing for me is I totally get uh, city fans being irate about it because I would I, I I totally get opposition fans getting annoyed 
I don't understand United fans getting annoyed back and trying to argue the case. Like, surely, surely you take you, you take great like it's a derby. You've got an ill-gotten sort of goal or a dubious goal at best. Like, like that is that is manner from heaven. You should be you, you should you that's that's better than like a forty-yard screamer. You should you should revel in that. You shouldn't. It's not okay to sort of like. Oh no! I now have to. It's now a debating society after the game. Like you don't win. You don't need to win the debate. You've won the game. Wilson, you were there. What, what was the chat about when that goal went in? Well, it was, it was one of those um, in the press box. Everybody thought it was offside when you when you you know your instinct, all your football watching instincts say this is offside, and you think yeah, Kanji stepped up. He's clearly yeah two or three yards off. And then as soon as there was a moment of delay, he's like, hang on, he hasn't touched it, has he? If he hasn't touched it, maybe the way the law, or, or rather the guidelines of the law now are, maybe that does count. And then I think there's an odd thing happens, which is, because you see, it wasn't a VAR decision. I saw a lot of people in the, in the moment saying, oh, it's a VAR decision. It wasn't a VAR decision. It was Stuart Atwell went over to Darren Cann and obviously asked him, who, who have you flagged offside there? And Darren Cann presumably has said, I flagged Rashford off. It's up to you to decide whether he's interfering or not. And in that moment, Stuart Atwell decides, no, he wasn't interfering. I think that decision is, is not obviously wrong enough for VAR to overturn it. But I also think that, and that, that technically under the guidelines they've been given, that, that may even be the correct decision. In terms of how football should be played, how football has always been played, it's an absolute nonsense. Clearly, Akanji's whole decision-making, his reactions, all his movements are conditioned by Rashford and Rashford is offside and therefore that should be given as offside. And I think, you know, I would also say on, on you know, the um, Salah goal against Wolves last week, I think is in a similar category. It's a different part of the law, but where our attempts to to codify what is and isn't interfering has made the thing a nonsense, that you have defenders taking defensive actions, whether that be stepping up to play a player offside or whether it be trying to head a ball clear, that they only take because that player is there in an offside position. And then somehow that counts against them. Whereas if they performed the action badly, somehow they'd be better off. And that, that can't be right. Yeah, but maybe if, if Rashford, instead of shepherding the ball expertly, as you say, like a centre-back trying to get a goal kick, just going, you know, just like, sort of like um, one man and his dog. It was just beautifully done. But if he just stopped straight away, Troy, then maybe I, I can see a case for it. If he just put his hands up and going, I'm not taking any part in this, you know, be gone ball, not, not let me follow you. Come by, come by. He almost had a bo- the ball on the string, didn't he? He was literally running with the ball in between his feet. He's already evoked the actions of the Man City defence, as, as, as both have mentioned there. But also, very importantly, Edison's stance as well. Um, I'm not a goalkeeper. I don't pronounce to be a goalkeeper, but I'm joining the union. I joined it on Saturday afternoon and I'm going to continue to join it and stay with it because... Edison's looking at the, the the shape of Rashford's run, the angle of Rashford's run, and is following that. I think they showed it last night really well, and he's following that all the way through. And you can see where his eyes are fixated on. And then all of a sudden pops this other, uh, you know, red and push, puts the ball in the back of the net. It For me, it's a scandalous decision. Uh, Jonathan, are you saying that VAR didn't look at it because they were happy with the referee's decision and didn't want to influence that that decision at all? Well, because I, I, I think the reason VAR doesn't get involved is that they would say whether he's interfering or not is a subjective decision and Stuart Atwell has made that decision on the pitch and they will not overturn that. It is my understanding why VAR doesn't get involved. Because what I, what I also like, just from the aesthetic point of view, one of the great things in football is when a linesman talks to a referee and you've got this, this sort of 
posse of angry players on both sides surrounding them trying to influence them but also not trying to you know if you get too close you might sort of you know flip them the wrong way so you've got, you've got to sort of apply the right amount of pressure with all the headsets and mics they've ruined that they just sort of stand there with their fingers in their ear this outward went over to him and so it was it was bill troop talking to ray tinkler at ellen road 1971 Trying to decide if Colin Suggett had been interfering or not. The the, the, the scandalous and Leeds Leeds have gone mad and every have every right to go mad. That goal, which also won Arsenal the title, as I suspect this one might end up doing. From a neutral point of view, it's a beautiful thing to see. Two middle-aged men talking seriously behind their hands, nodding a bit, then pointing, <laughs> while lots of athletes in brightly coloured clothing shout at them. It's a great thing. It is. Um I mean, people will yell at us for only talking about this decision before we go on to the whole game, Nos. But like must be so must be so odd for a Manchester United fan to be good again to you know like you this is you know are the barren years over it's almost a decade is it of being shite I, I mean I still refuse to accept that we're good again it's it's, it's like I, I saw I saw Newcastle fans saying oh suddenly Manchester United have been talked about in the, uh, uh, as being part of the title challenge uh surely that means we are as well and it's like neither of us are like it's it's just it's just not happening. It's it's almost like do you know when those VHS boxes used to come out of like the the race for the title at the end of end of end of seasons when VHS uh, videos are still a thing, and it used to have like the five four or five teams that are challenging for the title on the cover with with the winner in the middle. Like at the moment, I'm just ha- I'm I'm happy to be on that cover. I'm happy to be on that VHS cover. Little things could could sort of knock them off course. Like it could be like a like a Varane injury, or it could be. Uh, uh, Bruno uh, getting injured for for Newcastle, so um, yeah, it's it's great, it's great at the moment. And and from my point of view, like I was, I'd scratch that off as like a defeat. So I was kind of thinking, oh, we're gonna lose Sitter, uh, but then but then like, I, I factored that in in my head. So um, no, it was it was great, and it's it's great to see um, a manager who who impacts the game. And he's, he's constantly changing things and uh, things like uh, bringing on Ganacho because like he could see uh, that the city city players were pushing forward and that that could either leave space behind them or bringing somebody on could pin them back. The way he's he's uh, turned Shaw into in, into like Beckenbauer, it's great. Like the little things like fans fans love little things like that. To be fair, if he's turned Luke Shaw into fans Beckenbauer, that's not a little thing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Gav says, um, how, how does Haaland fit into the Al Nasser team next season, Wilson? I mean, it's all this talk now of, you know, if, if City don't win anything. Or, 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 did, was City bad on Saturday? No, were United no, no, better? No, no. Or, what well, look, I, uh, I, don't, I don't think City were anywhere near their best. I think, actually, the first half, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I don't know how much the television coverage made of this, but it was really windy. Um, and it was a strange sort of gusting wind. So, you, well, I, I sort of realised quite early that loads of players who you know, you know, were, were misplacing passes, you wouldn't expect to misplace passes. Loads of players were miscontrolling the ball. Casemiro miscontrolled two two passes that yeah, he just shouldn't have. De Bruyne was really struggling with his range early on. Was it windy at Spurs yesterday? <laughs> For Spurs players, we'll get on to that. Uh, Edison's kicking was really bad. I think those two one-on-one chances Rashford had in the first half, I think both of them, I think the first one is touches too heavy. The second one is touches too light. I think both of them is because the winds affected the flight of the ball. It was it was a real, really odd gusting wind. If I hadn't seen City be so bad at Southampton in the Carabao Cup, and I know a lot of the players were different, I would just say, look, the conditions were really difficult. The first half was United's um, positioning were really good. They made it really hard for City. 
Um, but it was quite a sort of scrappy, patchy game. And then the way it seemed to be going was City have such a strong bench. Yet again, they they bring a player off a bench who, who, who scores a goal, as they had done um, at Chelsea in the league yeah, before the cup game, when it was Grealish crossing for, for Mares. Here it was, it was Grealish scoring the goal. And, and so the sort of story that's sort of beginning to form is uh, yeah, City weren't great, but conditions were difficult. It's a derby. They've got the win because of the strength of their bench, and that's probably what's going to carry them to the title. But then the story becomes, well, the story becomes the offside decision. Rashford could just say he was blown along, like that he wasn't even trying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was just like a Chris Pappas. Yeah. It, it becomes, uh, yeah, two things. So one is this habit City have, or Guardiola teams generally, not just City, have had of conceding goals in quick con- quick succession. Yeah, twos and threes. And you can go back, you know, the the, uh, the game against Liverpool in the Champions League, the, where it was 3-0 by half-time. Yeah, this, it's happened against Leicester a couple of times. It, yeah, it, Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace did it, Jonathan. Crystal Palace, yeah. The, the, the Liverpool game where Liverpool ended up winning 4-3, but they went 4-1 up early in the second half. There's, there's a whole load of examples where, for whatever reason, they concede one and then they concede one or two within sort of five, ten minutes. Uh, the Monaco games, the, the Real Madrid game last season. And it, it, it seems to be that because the mechanism is so sophisticated, because the, the way they play is more important than any individual, that you, you offset that uh, and, or you, you dislodge that and it, it just sort of goes, goes haywire. And there's no sort of players there in the manner of, say, a Roy Keane to grab the game and say, right, this isn't happening and just calm everything down in five or ten minutes, that the players are so subordinate to the system that they lose that that little bit of leadership. Sorry, sorry I butted in there, Max. Crystal Palace, 22nd of December, 2018. I mean, there's a couple of fabulous goals in that game. I'm not quite sure who scored. <laughs> Dave says, uh, would letting Qatar buy Spurs so I can stop supporting them on principle be the easiest way out of my torment? Adam says, do we need to take taking Arsenal seriously more seriously, Troy? Arsenal, I thought, won this game. I thought they were brilliant, but they, I felt they didn't really have to be brilliant to win the North London derby. No, they didn't, unfortunately. But um, their first half, the Arsenal's first half was very good, very, very good. The dominated possession. Um, but still, you have to go to the key point in that first half, and that's whatever Hugo Lloris was doing after that deflection, you know, he made a mistake at Villa the other week as well, didn't he? And that gives Arsenal the initiative to go on and and play out their game plan. Um, Spurs are in no position whatsoever to to come up against Arsenal at home. The fans were quiet by, by... just after Larissa scored, then it was it was almost like Spurs went back to type and were waiting for the second half to to surge back into the game. But Arsenal were very good. You know, this is a sticky fixture for them. They haven't won at White Hart Lane, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, or wherever else Spurs have been playing um, for for quite a while. So you could tell, and we'll probably get onto the celebrations at the end. But you could tell by the end of it, it was a massive, massive win. Um, because of how close um, everyone else is getting. I love the fact that Man United, who have been longing to get back into the title race, are now saying that they're not in the title race, (laughs) even though they're only a point behind Man City, by the way. But no, it was a great fixture. Spurs, too many players, um, as in recent weeks, just not on it. Just absolutely not on it. And Arsenal were as comfortable as you can be in a North London derby, particularly in the first half. And then they dropped deeper in the second half. And just watch Spurs play in front of them. Um, yeah, absolutely dominated the game. 
Uh, Tony says, has Hugo Lloris forgotten that he's only retired from international football, <laughs> which I <laughs> quite enjoyed. And, and he compared it to Ramsdale, who just did everything he, 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 you know, he needed to do. I mean, the gulf nods between these two sides is enormous. And Arsenal have these things like patterns of play and pressing and control and being comfortable in tight spaces. And I was obviously watching this with a very Spursy lens, <laughs> which is a lens that just is broken. And just really, oh, it was very bleak for me. But like, you have to give Arsenal and Arteta so much credit. Oh yeah, like I mean, I've, I've heard I've heard some people sort of suggest, oh, the goalkeepers were ultimately the, the difference, and that might be true to a small extent. Like, like, like Larice, like I, I still don't understand. Like, I'm not a goalkeeper. Um, but like, I still don't understand what was going on there. Like it was, it was like it was like he was surprised to be there. It was like it, it was like I, I, it was like a, it was like that, that exact moment. Like Sam Beckett had quantum leaped into his body. He's like, oh boy, like well, what do I do? But it, it was, uh, but 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 no, it's 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 that it's that thing that, like you were saying. Like Arsenal look like a proper proper team now. And 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 there's there's been there's been periods um, there's been seasons in the past where Arsenal look really good, especially going forward. But you kind of get the feeling that okay, it's just a it's just a, a good bit of form they're going through, or they're just one injury away from sort of collapsing, or mentally things will get to them. There's there's been no sign of that. Any any talk about City about about Arsenal falling away this season at the moment, I just can't see it. They've, they've coached with injuries. They've they've maintained their sort of uh, their charge. Like the World Cup hasn't destabilized destabilized their sort of. Uh, they sort of run at all, and and in that game, like they played really, really well in the first half, as as bad as as Spurs were. But um, the second half was almost more impressive because that's the side that Arsenal need to show to win the league. Like that second half is is what wins you the league. Uh, this, I mean, first of all, it's this this thing about Spurs, accepting the fact that Spurs are going to be crappy in the first half, and then they're going to come. Good in the second half. Like I don't get, I don't get how that happens. I don't get how collectively they manage to do that. Like it's in, it's almost impressive that that keeps on happening. But but also like so, so you, like knowing that that Spurs are going to come back in the second half and Spurs did put a lot of pressure on and Arsenal. The thing about Arsenal getting out and not getting out of third gear in terms of the attacking in the first half, like the second half they didn't really struggle that much with with like. The Alamo or or the, the or Spurs version of the Alamo, and it it was in the end it was it was kind of too easy for them. I, I don't know what the bookmakers' odds suggest, but for me, it's the first time now I think Arsenal are favourites to win the title because they can they can mess up well they can lose two games and draw a game and still be still be top, and also City just don't look as remorseless as as they have done in previous seasons. I don't know if the World Cup has has played a trick on us mentally that there's still twenty games to go. Yeah, we're not halfway yet. We're not. I, I sort of feel that we've come back from a World Cup and we're talking about this as the run-in, but actually, yeah, we, we're nowhere near the run-in yet. And I, I don't know if that's just sort of skewed our perceptions of where we are in the season. I can't quite work out what I normally think after eighteen games of a season because it's not something you normally have to think about, right? If the positions were switched and City were eight points clear, you would say that City have got the league wrapped up. You, you wouldn't be able to see a way that City would lose it. I still think. I mean, he, I mean, Smith Rowe coming back. You played against Oxford, coming off the bench yesterday. That's a huge thing for them, because that was the area where you sort of, oh yeah, one injury there, and it could be in a bit of bother. But Smith Rowe, you know, he can cover so many positions 
in in that forward line. Yeah, it's it, it it is a little bit more strength and depth. But they still don't really have strength and depth. If they were to get two or three injuries in quick succession, you still think they could they could falter. But yeah, I I I, I think right now you'd say I'd say Arsenal are, are marginal favourites. Troy, um, most Spurs fans are focusing their eye more on Daniel Levy than they are on Antonio Conte. Is Conte getting a bit of a pass here? Because, like Mike says, is is it worth Spurs backing a manager who isn't invested in the club long term, has six months left on his contract, plays insipid football, doesn't improve any players, is sacking him, brackets, getting Poch back, the an answer? Or, or is Conte this born winner that it just doesn't feel any different to Mourinho football? It really doesn't to me. I've seen a change in what Spurs fans are thinking. And I think, yes, while Daniel Levy and the board get a lot of criticism, as always, I think there's a lot of fans that now believe that Conte is not the one. Um, and that all of the things that you've just described there, you know, his his style of football is not easy on the eye. Um, the development of players, we've seen Song go backwards. We've seen quite a number of players just not up to the task or maybe not up to what he wants to deliver. I've, I've always said this, that a lot of those Spurs players do not seem like they're progressing, but is it, is it about the players more than the manager, more than the, more than the board? But then you look at this team that absolutely blew Arsenal away only in May of last year. And now you see a, an Arsenal team full of development, full of togetherness, their ability shining through against a set of non-functional players who have a limited game plan um, with no real design on where they want to be and what they want to do. And, Ultimately, the manager's in control of that. And ultimately, it's the manager who will take the flak because of that. I mean, are they going to sign players? Maybe they're not trusting Conte with money now as well. So I can see why he gets stick. I can see why um, the fans are now, you know, looking at multiple different avenues and thinking that's the problem, that's the problem, and that's the problem. And honestly, I don't think he'll stay. I, I, I don't think he'll stay. I don't think that the fit between the club, between the manager and between the players is a good one at the moment. I'm not quite sure how long this can continue, to be totally honest. Ian says, it's the best punishment for the brainless fan kicking Ramsdale, being banned from the second half of Spurs matches and having to attend <laughs> the first half. Yeah, and what an idiot. Um, Ramsdale was kicked afterwards. He said, the Spurs fans gave me some throughout the game. I was giving some back. The people I did... Give it to, greeted it in a sportsman-like terms. He says, one fan tried to give me a little punch on the back. Spurs said the fan would face an immediate ban. Uh, that'll do for part one. Part two, a lot of clubs in crisis. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Brighton 3, Liverpool nil. Uh, John says, is this season time to rename the Everton Cup the Liverpool Cup? I mean, the Everton Cup is something wildly different now. We'll we'll get to that, Troy. Don't worry. Uh, Klopp said this was his worst game ever at Liverpool. Not as you're obviously objective once again. <laughs> um, how, how, how did you find this one? Uh, glorious. Uh, no, it's... it's uh... I mean, what I do because I am such a petty little man is 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 whenever whenever Liverpool lose, I love. First of all, I I love tuning to Radio Merseyside just to listen to the phone ins. <laughs> but but secondly, like like God, Radio Merseyside must have been amazing. This <laughs> oh, weekend. it was. Oh, it it was genuinely amazing. Like like it was like 
the the sort of the, the poor guy in the studio is being double teamed by by like these like like angry Everton fans one minute, angry Liverpool fans the next. He did such a good job of like coping with it. But and also I I I listen to um like a number of Liverpool podcasts which are actually very good and it's kind of sad I I can only listen to them when when Liverpool lose. But I don't think I don't think anyone's turning on Klopp in terms of oh Klopp out or anyone sensible. But I think there's a there's like there's doubts coming in about certain aspects of the way he's managing the situation. And I think that's absolutely valid. Like, it doesn't matter how good your manager is. It doesn't matter if it's if it's Pep Guardiola. It doesn't matter if it's Alex Ferguson, whoever. Every, everyone, you, you, like, you, you, you're well within your rights to, like, complain about certain things and, and, and be agreed about certain things while still respecting the manager and, and wanting them to stay. I think, I think the, 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 thing with the, the thing I've noticed with Liverpool fans is... is there's a concern that um, Klopp can't do it on his own. And with various um, people behind the scenes leaving Liverpool, um, has that destabilised things to the extent that um, he he's lost some of what made uh, him a great manager and made Liverpool a great team in terms of them working collectively? I, th- I think the problem is that we we knew really, even last season... Might even mean the season before that Liverpool had the average a the highest average age of um, players who'd started games, so you knew that they were coming into a period of transition, and that's always difficult. You know, the the hardest thing for managers to do is to take apart the thing that's worked, and and to, and to have that ruthlessness. And maybe maybe Klopp doesn't doesn't have the same ruthlessness that say uh, you know Paisley did or or Ferguson did. And the problem is as as they've been going through this period of transition which was going to be difficult anyway, they've been hit by this absurd injury crisis. I mean, the number of players they've got out is ridiculous. And so probably the players who they're trying to transit out are having to play every week anyway. I'm guessing the plan wasn't to have Fabinho and Jordan Henderson starting most weeks. But then again, yeah, they're only, what, 29 and 32. They're not they're not ancient. Uh, I think the other thing that's become really noticeable this season is, is Salah just seems... Basically, I don't think Salah's played well since he came back from the Cup of Nations. I can imagine playing under Carlos Queiroz is a pretty miserable experience and it, it seems to have really knocked him. I don't, I don't know if he was more involved in the game before or whether he's always done the same thing. It's just that Liverpool aren't pressing as well and so the ball's not getting to him as much. And that, I think, has put extra pressure on, on Alexander-Arnold. I think with Henderson not really playing as well, that yeah, he was always a link between the two. So I, I think the reason it's gone so badly wrong so quickly is, is, is it's just inherent in that style of play. You saw it at Dortmund as well. That... If you play this very sophisticated presser game that demands absolute buy-in from everybody, that you know one player being five percent off has this huge ripple effect on everybody. It cha- you know changes everybody's roles. That, that you know if rather than picking on individuals, say you notice that the left winger isn't pressing enough, so the left midfielder has to then cover for that. So he's not in quite the same position. So the centre midfielder has to cover across, and that has an impact on the centre back. All that ripple effect going through, people start to lose form, and so the whole thing then disintegrates. Whereas maybe in a more old-fashioned style of play, it's easier for a player just to get on with doing his job. And if one plays a bit off, it, it doesn't quite have the, you know, the same effect over everybody. So I, I, I suspect that's what's gone wrong. That, that it, you know, Just the nature of the style of play is one or two players being off can have a huge detrimental effect on the whole. Then everybody starts being off and the whole thing spirals out of control. We had a tweet, and forgive me, I've forgotten who, who sent it, saying that whenever Brighton beat someone good, it's crisis at that club and not Brighton are good. And, you know, Kieran Maguire tweeting, their starting 11 cost £31 million. 
Right? And they are, and we talked about, you know, Spurs players not improving. These players, like Solly March looks like a world beater and he definitely didn't two years ago. You know, this is like, this is Potter, his legacy and De Zerbi taking it on a step. Yeah, I was going to say we've spent far too long on Liverpool than Brighton because Brighton were exceptional and we've got to identify and pick out the team that's dominated the game and won the game at a canter and, and Brighton did that. Regardless of whether it's Liverpool or whoever it may be, praise, we have to give the praise where it's due and Solly March, like you said, my notes here, was always looked a good player, but never truly hit the heights consistently. Well, he got two and, and, and created one as well. And we've got Danny Welbeck coming on with a throwback to Paul Gascoigne. Um, they were just, uh, like I said, they, they've moved on from the previous manager who did ever so well. Um, but they've gone on to another level. And, and that other level is, is being able to put the ball, just being able to put the ball in the back of the net finish off some really good moves, entertain as they've always done, but looking like a real good, solid team. Uh, where are they now? I think they're, they're seventh in the league. Let's have a look. Just a, a point behind Fulham. They're above Liverpool. They're looking upwards, definitely looking upwards. And, and their um, goal difference record is a lot better than definitely what it used to be as well. So a very proactive team. I think it was really interesting that Solly March said that the, the gaffer as as gaffer I'm saying look almost as if I'm part of Brighton squad there but yeah is is has has improved him no end and he's how much he's enjoying playing under him and I don't think that's a slight on Potter I just think someone's come in and tinkered some things and and like you said with the money they've spent and the recruitment drive at that football one talks about the recruitment drive at Brentford but the the recruitment drive here at, at Brighton has been equally as good um, we've spoken about Matoma. We've spoken about them bringing players, Ferguson from the academy, um, and they're, they're working to the to the max of their ability. And that ability is top class. And regardless of whether Liverpool were poor or not, you've still got to take advantage of it. And Brighton did that so well. There's a a pattern you occasionally see in sports. I think you can see it with Michael Vaughan replacing Nasser Hussain as as England cricket captain. I think you can see it at, at the Ajax of the early seventies when you had Ryan Michaels followed by Stefan Kovash. But you have a very, very good coach or, or captain who's essentially quite cautious and conservative and makes that team hard to beat and puts the defence in place. And then they get a more attacking coach, a more expressive figure in charge, and they reach a new level that they probably wouldn't quite have reached under that previous coach. And I wonder if almost by accident, with losing Potter, Brighton are going through that same thing, that Potter got all the basics right, he got the basic structures, he made them very hard to beat, and now they've got Deserby who can take it on to a different level and and make them you know you're a really good well balanced team who can attack as well as defend, and perhaps if Potter hadn't been there, Deserbi wouldn't have been as effective coming in. And I think that's also it's a it's an almost impossible thing for a board to plan, because you've got the bloke who's made you way better than you were, but if you through circumstance can replace the the bloke who's got the basics right with the bloke who can put the bells and whistles on top at exactly the right moment, you can achieve incredible things and I think that is possibly what, what Brighton are, are doing at the moment it's good news for Chelsea fans in about four years when <laughs> Deserby comes in Daniel says is Liverpool Chelsea next week going to be the biggest ninth till ninth versus tenth clash in Premier League history um, yeah that is wild isn't it let's go to Goodison William says is Troy contractually obliged to be on after Everton have had a shocker no it's just Troy is on sometimes so <laughs> that's how it works um, I will start on the pitch Noz um, James Ward-Prowse two brilliant 
free goals from him, one a free kick and one great control. Robin says, at what point do teams, goalkeepers, try something different against James Ward-Prowse? Walls don't work. Surely you have better rods standing in the middle with no wall blocking your line of sight. Yeah. Or, or, or have have players on on the posts uh, or something. He's he's just so good. Like like um, I think Nathan Jones like said like he's the best best technician in the in the league. And and it's like it's hard to argue with that. He's he, his his sort of control of of the ball when he hits the ball is is outstanding. And it's and it's that thing of like. Sometimes the free kicks almost work against him because because there's a feeling of like that's what he does, that's his game, and it's not. He's he, he's he's technically so good, and he adds so much to that team. And yeah, but 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 again, it's 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 that thing of sometimes it's it's great when you've got a great player who stays at a Southampton or like um, we talk about Brighton. Like it would be great if like they could keep the fulcrum of that team and. Uh, and sort of build on that. Um, it's it's not always necessary, or or it's it's not always uh, for the neutral. It's not always great when these players move on because like it'd be great if Ward Prowse like becomes another like Leticia, like albeit sort of not turn into <laughs> a lunatic in about twenty years' time. But yeah. Meanwhile, Troy, and we'll keep it on the pitch to begin with. Everton were bad again. No, no, they weren't. No, it was a competitive no. first half. They were bad again after half time which then alludes back to the team talk, what happens in that team talk. But I thought it was a very good first half. Um, Anana was outstanding, to be fair, and, and deserved his goal and was everything. He was swashbuckling. He was he was all over the place. He was driving the team forward. He was getting back, making last-ditch tackles. Someone's going to come in for him when, when whatever happens with Everton happens because he's too good a player to be where he is at the moment. And he's... Listen, he he was brilliant. Southampton, to be fair, they were in the game. They were tidy. And then James Ward-Prowse had that chance just before half-time that Pickford put... Max, I wanted to talk to you about all the shots on target there were this weekend that hit the post and come out again that, um, you know, we're still going to have that discussion with. But it was almost Not on like... target. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost like that was the, the, the turning point I mean, it was a great save from Pickford and, you know, Everton defended the situation and then they come out. I don't know what happens. I'm going to say it again. I don't know what happens at halftime with this football team because the same happened against Brighton. Within six minutes, they were 3 three nil down, whatever it was. And then first thing that Southampton do is they lump the ball up against the three um, or two of the Everton um, centre-halves, two of the three at the back. Adams wins it and no one is tracking Ward-Prowse. No one has tracked. And if anyone else had scored that goal with the way that he he, he cut inside Ben Godfrey um, and slid the ball home, then we'd be talking about it again for quite a long time. Imagine a, a Spurs first half, Everton second half team that you could watch. Um, didn't Lampard? What's going what's gonna, to what's gonna happen, Wilson? I mean, he seems to be one of the less unpopular bits at Everton at the minute. Um, and I, I sort of... You know, I, I, I've seen nothing in his managerial career that makes me think he's going to be a good manager. But I also think that Everton at the moment is essentially unmanageable and you can't really judge him on this. And the thing I don't get about Everton, I mean, clearly a lot of the boardroom positions have not been good. And I think you can stretch that over sort of 15 years or so. Uh, but there's a lot of money being spent and that squad is not as bad as a lot of other... You know, it's, it's, a, it's a better squad. It's got better players in it than other teams in the bottom sort of third quarter of the Premier League. Uh, but then, you know, there's all the 
the stories about Osmanov's involvement and, and exactly what his relationship with Mashiri is. That, you know, there's a um, story in The Guardian yesterday suggesting Osmanov had been there when interviewing previous managers. We, we know that there's, uh, the business relationship between Mashiri and Osmanov is, has, has historically been very close. We know that Osmanov, uh, his companies were sponsoring the training ground. Now, obviously, that's problematic because he's been sanctioned as a, you know, as a, as a close ally of, of Putin. And he, he, in theory, has, has no involvement in the club, quite apart from bad decisions in terms of recruitment, managers, whatever else is causing it to go wrong. Yeah, that, that I think, is a, is a major headache for the club going forward. Uh, the owners were advised to stay away from the ground um, uh, due to concerns over their safety, uh, which is pretty depressing. Uh, the chief executive, Denise Bar- Baxendale, was apparently put in a headlock as she left the director's box, um, according to club sources. Um, you saw fans confronting players, one having a long conversation with Yeri Mina. It seemed quite a lot like a caller to Radio Merseyside, I would suspect, Noz. Um, and that is just, you know, the, all that stuff is... Re- it is Football's a game and it's ridiculous. I don't, I don't know how we don't need to go into it in, in massive detail, do we? It, it's a ridiculous state of affairs where owners can't, whether you like your owner or you don't, or anybody can't go to a game for fear of their own safety. That seems pretty obvious uh, to me. There was a peaceful process um, protest inside the ground. I'm not quite sure why all this information came out ahead of the game, you know, on the, on the Saturday of the game. You know, the situation with Denise should have been dealt with. It was at the previous game, apparently, against against Brighton. And, you know, it's a criminal offence. And, and I'm not quite sure how people can get away with that, with someone who's who's leaving the ground, I think, or leaving a director's box. And, and, and it only gets mentioned two weeks later. The, the stuff with the players, listen, I've been there before. And I, I know that when there is trouble like this, players are directed to another exit and they're told to leave by that route because the fans are waiting for them out in front. So I'm not quite sure how the situation with Mina and Anthony Gordon, they were chasing Anthony Gordon down the road. Um, he was, he, he'd driven into what seemed like a blocked off road. And I don't understand how these situations manifest themselves. What happened inside the stadium was a simple protest that unfortunately clubs like Everton are always going to do because they feel that the club is being run in, in a disgraceful state. Um, whether they're right or wrong is another matter. Well, that, that's another story. But what happened with the informa- all that information coming out ahead of the game only rolled up those fans even more and only made the situation even worse. I mean, I, 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 completely, I completely agree with Troy there. Um, again, like, as with Troy, I don't understand why, why that information was brought out before the game. Like, if anything, I think that just throws oil onto the whole situation. Um, I, I just feel really sorry for the Everton fans because they, uh, they're they trying to be as organised as possible. They're trying to communicate their concerns in a rational way as possible. Um, like you say, they're not going after the manager. They're not going after the easy target. They're explaining exactly why they're unhappy. Um, they they factored in and they appreciate the fact that a lot of money has been spent and yet they are still concerned and they are concerned about the board and uh, decisions that are made. Um, and yet now everyone is talking about um, a situation where a few idiots have gone too far and 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 and, and that that's really not fair. And and and, and there's and the, I think with certain clubs and a certain set of fans, there can be almost like a 
uh, ridiculing of what they're sort of arguing for. So it can be like, oh, why don't Everton fans shut up? Because they should be grateful they're in the Premier League and my club is in like whatever, whatever division or whatever. Like it's all relative. Like all Everton fans want to do is go to a game on a weekend and and sort of enjoy it to some extent. The thing with the thing with any protest is like fan groups always disagree and there's loads of little factions. Again, Everton fans have tried to organise and mobilise and they've got various factions within their sort of fan base together to, to, to sort of fight this cause in a really strategic way. And I just don't want them, them to be dismissed. I don't want them to be dismissed because um, there's been certain sort of uh, isolated issues with trouble. And, 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 even, and even like um, stopping sort of players in, in, in the street, like outside the cars or whatever, even that situation, they were being reasonable. They, they were self-policing. Like I could hear fans saying, saying, he's got a kid in the car, like calm down. Like they were self-policing. So, so... And again, this thing about fans, and and it, and it sort of uh, it relates to the Spurs fan sort of kicking the idiot kicking um, Ramsdale. It's like I think in this current sort of climate where we've got a totalitarian government, and we've got people who are ready to again treat fans like they're idiots and sort of uh, curb any kind of protest. You've got to be so careful not to overreact because protest is important and fans are important. Like they're stakeholders, so. This thing about and and we're, and it's right to say fans don't always know what's happening within a club, but they still they they still demand answers and they should be given answers. I'd probably uh, duty bound to say some people would argue we don't live in a totalitarian state, but uh, but you made you made some very good points there, Noz, and uh, uh, that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll rattle through the rest of the Premier League games. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, let's go through the rest of the games then. Wolves beat West Ham 1-0. Daniel Pedence scoring uh, just after half-time. Um, Tom says, given Moyes' poor form, would it be wise for West Ham to sack him now, find a replacement, and then bring Moyes back in March to save them for the third time? I mean, I, we already mentioned this. West Ham Everton is huge, Wilson, isn't it? But West Ham do... It's a bit like, you know, teams that don't seem to have a plan B. I don't really know what West Ham are really ever trying to do. And that seems like quite a fall from from last year where my mind tells me they were quite good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I think it's a historical thing that you've seen with, with Moyes that with players with either British players or players of British experience, people who are used to that approach, he does very well and he, he can take them to yeah, sixth, seventh in the table. As soon as you try and make that more complicated, you bring in players from a different background, so people like Skamaka or Pakita, he, he, he or Didier Ndong, speaking from a Southern point of view, uh, he seems to really struggle to to, to connect with them. Um, and I, I sort of feel that's what's happened this season, that by trying to step up a level, they've ended up going backwards, that they've lost the, the, the solidity and the, the, 
the energy and the drive in the organisation that, that made them good over the past two seasons. And they haven't actually been able to add, the equality that they've added hasn't really been able to, to, to show itself. And you know, I think we, we saw that to an extent with Moise Everton, that, uh, and football was a pretty different game back then, um, that every attempt to step up from being the you know, really well-organised, really hard-working team didn't quite work. Are you saying you kind of you need Moyes, then Potter, then Deserby? That's the sort of run that your team needs for, for, for some ultimate success. Yes, that's exactly what I'd say. Yeah. So should Everton get Moyes in now? <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, it, the, the problem with with that is that uh, you're going back. Is I mean, I know Moyes has done it at West Ham, but going back is is never easy, is it? It's always um, memories of past times are not always useful, um, and how things were in the past. Uh, but I, I think it's a genuine thing that, that that you need different types of managers at different stages of development and transitioning from one to the next. It's a, because of this sort of an understandable desire not to get rid of somebody who's just ostensibly done a good job and a desire to show loyalty. It's, it's, it, it's a really, really difficult thing to do. And I, I think West Ham have, have mismanaged that attempt to, to step up, but they've mismanaged it in a totally understandable way. I don't, I mean, I don't think they're seriously in relegation trouble, but they've taken, is it one point from seven games now? Six games? I mean, they are they are 18th. Yeah, I mean, okay. That, that does sound like trouble, in fairness. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, it's but, so Their squad is, their squad should not be in that kind of trouble. But it is. Uh, I'll take we getting a tune out of Wolves at the moment, so that's a good win for them. Forest 2, Leicester 0. Uh, Troy, Morgan Gibbs-White and Brennan Johnson were both excellent in this game. And actually that goal where Gibbs-White you know, does really well to get out of a tight space, play that ball the outside of his foot. And Johnson's first touch, I think it's the second goal, is so good. Morgan, listen, Morgan Gibbs-White is all over my notes. You know, remember his fee. Um, remember the fact that, um, you know, he struggled to start with. As a lot of the, I don't know how many was it, 22 signings that Forrest did. But he's coming into his own now and um, he's proven his worth. And it could be the best amount of money that Forrest have spent during this, during that window in the summer. Um, and his connection with, with, with Johnson is, is brilliant. You know, both goals came from those two. Johnson's a live wire anyway. He's, you know, he, he runs he runs in and beyond defences. And when he goes, he's, he's, he's hardly ever caught. And his composure in front of goal is, is, is brilliant. But Gibbs-White is running Nottingham Forest's midfield. Well, he's just playing, he's playing in a kind of Jesse Lingard position. I know Lingard's injured at the moment, I believe. But if you're going to compare the two... Gibbs White has, has, has really stepped up this season while Lingard hasn't performed to any kind of uh, part of his ability at all. It's so. really bad luck for Jesse Lingard for somebody to be playing really well in the Jesse Lingard position <laughs> at the same club as Jesse Lingard and not be Jesse Lingard. And not be it? Jesse Lingard, yeah, exactly. But I mean, listen, I, I think you just mentioned from 20th to 13th, there's only five points. Forest sit at 13, Southampton, who, you know, have, have seemed to have, well, you know, Jones has got his first win and, and, and they see, you know, after beating Man City as well, there seems to be an upward trajectory there. But uh, I like the job Cooper's doing. It was always going to take time to mould and, and, and get that team in his style. The, the club have stuck with him after everyone thought that he was going to get the sack. And I think you're seeing the results there and, and, and long may that continue for them. Leicester were in great form, Nods, before the World Cup. Five wins in six. Is it as simple as no James Madison? I mean, if your best player isn't there, that does make a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it does. But but also, like 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 watching them play, they, they just don't seem... 
motivated or they don't seem to have bought into sort of what's happening at the moment. And it's and it's one of those you talk about sort of uh, managers who could be in trouble. Like that's that could be the next one to go. To be honest, because like it just doesn't seem to be working at all. There's, there's just a, a malaise, and it's it's almost a case of like like um we like you you look forward to like who's going to be on match of the day and like what the running order is going to be it's kind of like like they're not they don't seem asked about sort of like it's almost as if like they they sort of like uh like give it a miss themselves like if they were on telly they they they'd, they'd sort of like sack it off like there just seems to be a, a a lot of indifference at the moment and uh yeah i don't think it's just one player i think uh, i think there's there's bigger issues there well i think the thing with rogers is that um, there was sort of talk about him getting sacked earlier in the season, and and the the understanding was that um, the owners' business, their, their business was is duty free shops in airports, which obviously was were hammered during the, the pandemic when nobody was travelling. So so they basically the, the the money supply was was very straightened, and that they couldn't afford to sack Rogers earlier in the season. But I think we're now getting to a point where. They've got to look at which is the bigger loss, the the payoff they've got to give Rogers or relegation, which costs more. Uh, and so I I think a situation where there was a bit of security, albeit you know, almost by default for Rogers early in the season, maybe we're entering a period where where where, where that 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 calculation has changed. Who is buying stuff from duty free? I mean, it's just you've got through security, and you've just got this windy, perfumey, you know. Trying, people trying to give you like <laughs> boar bourbon at at seven a.m. Like who isn't just trying to get through that as quickly as possible? Like what? Maybe that's just maybe it's just me. But like how? I, 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 I yeah. You have destroyed Leicester City Football Club with that kind of attitude. I'm amazed that is a that's that that you know if the world was sensible that wouldn't be a great way of making money because nobody <laughs> you just want to get through and get a pret. I, I think with duty free, everyone because everyone's bored, everyone's got time in their hands. Everyone turns into Todd Bowie and just starts buying stuff for no reason whatsoever. Just St James's Park. Then how's your luck, eh, Newcastle? Um, well, that Mitrovic penalty, Troy. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because you watch it going, he's sort of done a John Terry, but he's scored. Oh, that's lucky. And then I saw, do you think that should be a retake if you double hit like that and it goes in? I felt sorry for him. Maybe I've just got an agenda. I don't know. Well, mate, I, I felt sorry for him. I did feel sorry for him. It was obviously a massive moment for him at St. James's Park. Um, and I'd probably say that Fulham, did with the way that they set up and the way that they played, I know Newcastle had some really good chances and Callum Wilson maybe with a bit more game time behind him may have finished those. But there's two penalty decisions, weren't there? There were two massive decisions. The one that Dan Byrne, after pulling back... Uh, uh, who did he pull back? I've lost my moment there, but Piera wasn't it? And then the penalty that was given when Reed stepped on Trippier's foot um, and was given a penalty. So uh, it should have been the other way around. It may have been a different circumstance then, but yeah, I just felt for Mitrovic. She's it, you, you're watching him take it. You see it go in the net. I thought to myself, it's taking a deflection, but how can it take a deflection when there's only one player involved in it and. Yeah, I'm not even sure it was a great penalty, to be totally honest. And Pope might have saved it, but because of the, the obviously the, the, the deflection off his left foot, I just massively felt for him. Um, it, I don't know about anyone else. He's a likeable guy, Mitrovic. I love the way that he plays. He's, everyone thought that he wouldn't get goals in the Premier League this year, but he has done on a consistent basis. 
And I think it showed a mark of, of both teams, to be totally honest, where Fulham have stabilised themselves and the great job that's being done there. And now they're a, they're a competitive Premier League club, um, well, at least for one season. Um, we'll see if they progress from there. But then also Newcastle to stay at it, to keep at it um, and to eventually get their goal to win the game late on. I mean, as we talked a lot about the ownership and how, how certainly how I feel about it. And and but, but Troy is right. Eddie Howe is doing a, a ridiculous job. I still feel, and I don't know if it's just because a lot of Newcastle fans have yelled at me on social media. And so that is colouring my, my judgment of what may happen. I still feel that their squad, talk about squad depth, isn't deep enough to maintain this. There is a bit of a gap now between fourth and fifth, but uh, and maybe I'm just being na- maybe I'm being naive about the ability of Sean Longstaff. Maybe Eddie Howe has improved these players to such a level where they are actually, you know, gonna gonna stick it out. I think to be honest, I think Newcastle fans would probably agree. Like um, it, it kind of showed in the cup where where like the the, the first eleven's really good um, and playing really well together, but like after that, you you, you do have a little bit of a, a drop down, like. But um, I mean, I mean, how how is a really good manager, and 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 good managers find a way of solving sort of problems, and and like even think about sort of turning uh, like changing Joel Linton's um, position, like like he finds solutions. Um, I just I, I I love the way that like um, and it's kind of a, a narrative that's kind of uh, developed over the last few weeks of like of like the dark arts of Newcastle. And like, oh, they they'll do anything to win, and that's a that, that's a that's a real strength. And like, I can you can see how's loving that. Like, it's the first time he's been sort of described as like a bad boy, and like, uh, in 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 spite of the fact he's like the second most likely managed to be on LinkedIn in the Premier League. Like, it's it's like he's <laughs> loving it for, for for once. He's like the bad boy you wouldn't want to take home to mum, and like, but he really would be. He'd be lovely. So hang on, Jesse Marsh is first, right? Yes, Jesse Marsh has just joined LinkedIn, apparently. This is the big news. Um, A couple more games left. Chelsea beat Palace uh, 1-0. Huge win for Chelsea. Uh, A big goal for Kai Havertz to Palace's fifth defeat in six. Um, But Chelsea has so many injuries, aren't they? Despite spending £5 billion or whatever, you know. Badia Shah made his debut. Lewis Hall was playing. Chuck Wilmeno as well. Trevor Chalaber, who had a absolute shocker against Fulham in, on Thursday night after we recorded the last pod but they lost I mean the big story about this is is Mudrick turning up Joseph just to mention for how much of a madman Todd Bowley is please isn't he fun they've signed Mudrick from under the nose of Arsenal a deal worth up to 89 million um, an eight and a half year deal that would take us to the end of 2029 if one listener could put a reminder in their phone please for the end of the <laughs> Mudrick deal I wonder what we'll all be doing then uh, Graham says, what will happen first? The end of Mudrick's Chelsea contract or the rise of the machines that Arnold Schwarzenegger spent so much of his life warning us about? I, for one, welcome our new Skynet overlords. Um, Wilson, it's, it seems that their, their transfer policy, I don't understand FFP. People have explained how they can still spend all this money, but it seems wild. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the eight and a half year deal, part of the logic of that is that you... Um, you amortise the deal, so you know, eighty-five million quid, say over ten, over eight and a half years, is ten million a year. So it's it's not that much. But the flip side of that is you've got the liability of his wages every year for eight and a half years, and it might, you know, if he gets injured or uh, if he turns out not to be as good as we think he he, he might be, then you're, you're you're lumbered with those wages in the same way they've been lumbered with Lukaku's wages. Uh, so it's a it's a huge risk. Um, but I, look, I, Mudrick. 
we've seen him for Shakhtar in the Champions League. He looks brilliant, but it's in the Champions League. You know, what he's doing in the Ukrainian league isn't really that relevant to how he's going to do in the Premier League. I think signing any player from Ukraine or you know or another league of that stature is is always a risk. You, can he can he produce those levels every week? Um, and and you know, we we don't know that. Uh, so I think he's. I think he probably is a very, very good player with that slight caveat. What I don't see is any kind of plan. And that would really worry me. I, I, I sort of think one of the beauties of football as a sport is maybe even its chief beauty is that it's not just about getting the best players. It's about getting the best blender players. And that's a really difficult and complicated thing to, to achieve. And just paying more money for the bloke that another club you've heard of wants to sign probably isn't the best way to achieve that. I, I, I don't think that left-sided attacking role is where Chelsea were particularly weak. I think the back of midfield is where they desperately need support and, and wing-back or full-back, uh, particularly at the minute with Reese James and Ben Chilwell still out. Yeah. I Also, you know, Graham Potter being so naturally cautious and just looking at this litany of attacking midfielders going, I, just, I only want two of these. Like, I can't... There's just so many disappointed players. How disappointed are all the attacking midfielders going to be? It's ridiculous. So the, the, first, the first formation we actually can state with some confidence is in 1872, when England went to play Scotland and drew nil-nil, they played a 1-2-7, but they played two left-wingers and only one right-winger. Now, what we don't know is, was that just the players who were available or was that a regular plan? Because if you have right-foot players at the back hitting long balls, they naturally would drift left. What I quite like is the idea that Bowley's decided to educate himself on tactics and he's still on chapter one. <laughs> and he thinks, well, we'll play this 1-2-7. We'll overload the left side. We'll just play these long sweeping balls from right to left. And also, maybe that'll work because I'm reckoning not a lot of defences have seen that. True. But they could play 1-2-7 and still like Pulisic or Ziyech could be on the bench going, well, this is (laughs) totally ridiculous. Uh, Brentford beat Bournemouth 2-0. Jamie says, bit of a Ramos to PSG moment for me when I realised Bournemouth win the Premier League. Quite sure I haven't heard any of their results and I haven't noticed them while perusing the Premier League table. Well, they had the Gary O'Neill story. Um... And we know Brentford are, uh, you know, a good, solid Premier League team now. Bournemouth, I, I feel Nos Bournemouth are sinking. With no disrespect, and that usually means massive disrespect. Like, I, I sometimes forget they're two different teams. So, like, it's always useful when they do play that I realised, like, those are two different teams. And, like, it's it's almost like they're two brothers and, like, Brentford are now the slightly, <laughs> slightly better looking one. That's how you can tell them apart. So, also, 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 I felt so bad because, like... Um, there's so much football on all the time, uh, like every single day, and it's and it's both amazing and sort of like uh, too much, and and like you could see on like social media, like people just thought, right, I'm, I'm having a rest for this one, I'm sitting this one out, like <laughs> there's been too much. This is the one I'll miss. So, yeah, <laughs> um, Villa beat Leeds two one on Friday night. Emma says, when you talk about Leeds, please can you say more than they were a bit unlucky? Two wins in seventeen, we can see two a game. Jesse Marsh has shown. Show no sign of being able to fix the obvious problems in his system. We are completely reliant on Nonto, who he said wasn't Premier League ready in August. It's funny, Troy, because I thought Leeds were a bit unlucky against <laughs> Aston Villa. Yeah, but as it doesn't matter, does it? Ultimately, it's results that matter. And um, like I've just said about clubs in transition, Leeds are a, are a club in transition that is not going very well. And two in 17 normally puts the manager under a lot of pressure. So that's probably why he has joined LinkedIn, because he could potentially need a, an, another role soon. 
Um, listen, it, it was defensively again. I always worry about Leeds. I always worry about the leakages in the in their defensive back line. Um, they were unlucky, but ultimately results. Uh, you don't see that against the result. You don't see the scoreline and then, but how lucky Leeds were. You you see the scoreline and you know that they've lost another game. So important that they try and get some results. Good to see Patrick Bamford back, by the way. Um, I think they've missed him. I think they are in for a striker and they probably should have been long before now. But good to see him back and um, getting on the end of an opportunity because they're going to need him in the running. They're going to need a fit. Patrick Banford because it's not going to get any easier for them. That's for sure. It's, it's, I'm not on LinkedIn. Is anyone here on LinkedIn? I am. Yeah. You're you're on LinkedIn. Is it? I mean, yeah. are lots of football managers on there. Like, is, is Alan Kerbishley on LinkedIn? Is that a good place <laughs> for a footballer to football manager to be? Like, surely that's not how footballers get football managers get jobs, is it? I'm always surprised that there are certain players on there who put free agent. They may not be obviously the biggest players. They're players down the leagues, but they. They have on their free agent available, you know, as of as of today. But yeah, to see, unless he's running a business, I don't know if he's got a business on the side or whatever else. But yeah, I, I'm are you quite link, surprised. Are you linked in with him? Is that what it's called? Have you, have I, you I am up? not linked in with him. No, I'm not. Okay. No, I only found out the other day when I saw one of the tweets. So I may link in with him and see what his content uh, is all and, about. And does he accept? Does he accept your link? He has to accept you... me. Yeah, he has to accept. Right. Me. Okay. So if I press the like button, that. if he presses the button, then I have to accept right. him. And it's and it's biz- LinkedIn is purely business. There's no like not necessarily or like <laughs> offensive opinions about you know climate change or whatever. To be honest, Max, it's changed from where it was as a business platform oh, really? to just another okay. platform where if you want to be angry, you can be angry. If you want to be cr- crude, you can be crude. It's changed from where it was. That's for sure. Anyway, that's all we have time for. Thank you, Troy. Pleasure, Max, as always. Thank you, Wilson. Cheers, thank you, Max Noz. Pleasure. The Guardian Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Steve. This is The Guardian.